Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you will usually hear from the policy team at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission as we discuss the debates and news shaping our world. Our hope for this podcast is that it equips you to connect Christian theological motivations to political engagement. One of the key ways we connect our Christian theology to our work here in D.C. is by providing sound biblical teaching. And this year, that's exactly what our team did. Earlier in 2018, we hosted a series of events we called ERLC Academy on the Hill. At these Academy on the Hill events, the ERLC team gathered with congressional staffers, policymakers, and other leaders in Washington for a time of connection and training on Christian ethics from our president, Dr. Russell Moore. As many of you know, before coming to the ERLC, Dr. Moore served as provost and dean of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he also taught theology and ethics. We recorded Dr. Moore's lectures at these events and thought it would be helpful to bring that training directly to you. This episode of Capital Conversations is brought to you by the 2019 Evangelicals for Life Conference. Evangelicals for Life is a conference hosted by the ERLC and North American Mission Board. This two-day event is for you to learn how to be a voice for life and to champion human dignity in your community. Evangelicals for Life takes place here in Washington, D.C., ahead of the annual March for Life on January 17th and 18th, 2019. To learn more, visit evangelicals.life. And if you're able to join us here in D.C., you can use the promo code Capital Conversations to save 20% on your registration. That's promo code Capital Conversations, all uppercase, capital with an O, conversations, to save 20% on your registration. Visit evangelicals.life to learn more. This week begins a special two-part series on Christian ethics with Russell Moore. In part one, Dr. Moore will give an introduction to Christian ethics, and in part two, which airs next week, he will teach about the role of conscience in battling temptation. His introduction to Christian ethics will provide a framework for thinking through difficult ethical situations and applying the scriptures to the complex questions of our day. We go now to Dr. Moore's lecture, recorded live in the Russell Senate Office Building on Capitol Hill. Let's look in John chapter 13. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, John 13, I'd like for us to start reading with verse 31 and read on down into chapter 14. And this is Jesus after he's washed the disciples' feet, uh, after he served them. Gospel of John says this. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. 
Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. But let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I want you to think about, in your imagination, just for a minute, your uh, for those of you who are Christians in the room, maybe others who are, are, not, uh, are not Christians, but I'm speaking now uh, specifically to Christians. Imagine you're in the context of your church. Maybe you're at a, a small group uh, Bible study, or maybe you're just talking to a fellow Christian, maybe here on the hill. And the person says to you, I've, I'm kind of wrestling with a decision. I, I don't know what to do. He says that he signed up uh, to serve in an intelligence role. Uh, overseas uh, on behalf of uh, United States uh, intelligence uh, offices. And he says to you, I'm really grappling with it because I have to assume a different identity. And so I have an entirely different backstory that I'm supposed to give to people uh, when I'm overseas. Uh, a name that is not my name, a birthplace that is not my birthplace, an entire family history that's not my family history. And all this is necessary for me to be able to, to harvest the kind of intelligence information that we have to have. But as a Christian, I'm kind of conflicted as to whether or not I ought to be doing that since I'll be lying. Should I do it or not? And just think for a minute what you would say to this, to this person about whether or not he should do that. And then complicate it a little bit more. And he says, not only am I going to have to have a different identity and a different backstory. I'm also going to be going into an Islamic country uh, where I'm going to have to pretend to be a Muslim in order to fit into the environment around me, which means not only uh, when people ask me, are you a Christian, am I going to have to say, no, I'm a Muslim, but I'm also going to have to be a convincing Muslim. So when conversations come up about uh, the claims of Christ, I'm going to have to convincingly argue as though I deny the deity of Jesus and the, and the gospel. I'm going to have to be in situations where I'm going to have to be in Muslim worship services where for, for everyone else around me, it will seem as though I am worshiping as a Muslim. Is that all right? Can do that as a Christian? Think about your answer to him on that. And maybe he complicates it a little bit more. And he says, not only am I going to have to be uh, under this assumed identity with this assumed religion, I also am going to have to have an assumed family uh, in this other country with a, a wife who will know nothing about the backstory, potentially uh, children uh, who, are, who are coming that will, may know nothing about the backstory. I already have a wife. Uh, and children here in the United States, but in order to keep my cover, I have to live out this kind of life. Is that okay for me to do? And he says to you, I'm really torn because if we're going to have a military and an intelligence uh, apparatus, you can't walk right in and say, hey, we're from the United States. We're here to find out what you all are doing. 
on the other hand, here I am, a Christian, trying to grapple with the fact, can I, for the sake of my country, be sexually immoral, deny the name of Christ, any number of other things. Now, how are you going to navigate the sort of answer that you're going to give to this person? Now, here's why that's important. You're probably not going to encounter a situation just like that. But it's important to think about that sort of thing because every single day, all of us are coming up against all sorts of choices and decisions about actions that that we're making that we don't have ready concordance answers to. There, There are a lot of things that you have sort of cognitively the answers to. Here's what I would do in this situation, or you know how to find those things out in terms of scriptural revelation. But most of the sort of definitive things that are going to happen in your life that really are going to choose the direction that you're going to go are things you have not thought through, or they're going to be things that you're thinking through for the first time in a time when you have a major stake, emotionally, uh, maybe uh, spiritually, in the outcome of that decision. And what can happen is that you can find yourself in the sort of situation where you can be paralyzed, or you can find yourself in a situation where bearing one another's burdens Uh, can lead to a kind of paralysis. So tonight I want us to think through issues of how we even start to frame uh, some of these questions and to see these things as more significant and more important than the sort of uh, debates that we have on on Facebook and on, on social media, where really what's happening is not a grappling with a real decision, Uh, as a Christian. Instead, there's often simply an ethical question or a decision that's being put forward as a way just to identify who everybody's tribe is. And so you, you immediately know where you are on those particular questions, and the decision itself is just a stand in. That's not where you're going to be most spiritually imperiled. Where you're going to be most spiritually imperiled are going to be in situations that feel very unfamiliar to you, and you have to ask, how do I follow Jesus in this particular way? Now, that is not a marginal uh, sort of uh, conversation. I mean, the, the text that we read just a few minutes ago, Jesus is standing up and talking about uh, the living of the Christian life. He's preparing his disciples for what life will be like uh, once he ascends to heaven. And he says to them, I'm going away, I won't be here with you, and where I'm going, you can't come with me, but you will come afterward, and you already know the way. Now, the the confusion that has to hit in the room is one that I would would have immediately uh, felt as well, uh, which is to say, Lord, uh, wait a minute, when did this conversation happen where you gave us the code uh, as to to how we are to follow you? Maybe we were asleep uh, somewhere while you were praying. We don't don't understand where that is. Lord, where are you going, and how do you expect us to know the way? Jesus' answer here is actually, I think, the key to the entire biblical revelation. I am the way. So, What you have here is not Jesus Christ as sort of a a means to an end 
to forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, and as a, a teacher who is giving us directions as to how to live our life, although all that's true. Jesus Christ is himself the way and the pathway uh, toward not only final, uh, final consummation with God, but also to the living out of our lives to, to the degree that the Apostle Paul will talk about later, the life that I live is the life of Christ being lived out in me. The, the, the Word of God is coming in and affecting us in ways that are not just cognitive and directive. Here's what you do. Here's, what you, here's the, the way that you go. That's true. But primarily, the, the power of the Word of God is at work in you when you are not seeking the answers to particular questions, which is why you need the entire scripture. You need Leviticus. Uh, even though you, you look through it and you think, what does, what does Leviticus have to do with the way that I'm living my life out right now, with the sort of decisions that I have to make with my prayer life? And here's all of this stuff about skin blemishes and scab cleansings and, and, and so forth. The Word of God has an effect in shaping and reshaping the conscience and the intuitions in ways that are not immediately obvious to you. God is speaking to you through His Word, shaping and changing you through His Word in ways that often do not show up in your life until much later. Uh, and, and in ways that sometimes are not even obvious to you at the moment. You're, you're joining yourself to the life of Christ, and the life of Christ is one that doesn't just operate at the level of mental belief, but also operates then in action that comes out of that belief, which is why, uh, think of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, talking about the faith that is acceptable and commendable uh, before God. That faith is showing up in a whole series of actions uh, that are, that are un being undertaken in Hebrews chapter 11, pointing back to the Old Testament revelation. That is true for you. So when you think about this question of ethics, everybody has a system of ethics, uh, not just people who are working in uh, areas that, that seem to immediately have issues of moral importance. Everybody has a code of ethics. You cannot have uh, any sort of society, you cannot have any sort of uh, code of civil law if you don't have an understanding of ethics. Even beyond that, you can't have uh, movies. Uh, you can't have novels. If you don't have some system of ethics where someone can violate uh, those ethics in a way that can bring about narrative tension. Can't even have gossip. Uh, if people are going to gossip, they have to gossip about something that's being done wrong uh, to someone else. You can't do that if you don't have a basis and a, and a foundation for ethics. What's unique about a Christian view of ethics is that in the Christian view of ethics, there is a, there is a narrative arc that is leading toward judgment. So there are those things that are hidden, those, those decisions that shape and form who we are in terms of our character that are not going to remain hidden. And this is a personal reality. So when you think about the, there's a, a podcast I was listening to earlier this week about the phenomenon of moral licensing. 
where uh, you had someone who's doing a lot of work in the issue of corporate social responsibility. And, and what he wanted to do was to come in and teach corporations how to be uh, socially active and socially conscious. And so he wanted to have data uh, to demonstrate that this is a, a good thing. So he said, uh, they did, they did uh, surveys that demonstrated that really, uh, if you emphasize the corporate social responsibility of a particular company, it doesn't really have a lot to do with the bottom line in terms of how much money you make. But he wanted to demonstrate, but you will recruit better people and those people will work harder. And so they set up two dummy companies. They had one that had a, a high emphasis to corporate social responsibility and said, here are the things that we do to help the community. Another corporation that didn't. And he said the, the data uh, seemed to show uh, exactly what he was saying. You, you got higher quality people for the one that had a socially responsible corporation. You had people who were willing to work for less money uh, than they did at the other, uh, the other company. Problem was, what you also ended up having over a long period of time was much more theft in the corporation that emphasized all the things that they were doing for the community. I said, why? They said, well, because psychologically, the way that, that people typically operate is to justify actions that they're taking almost as though there's a ledger. And so if I think of myself as a good person who's doing good things for the community, then I can feel a little bit better when I start stealing a little bit uh, from, from the company. Uh, or as, as one uh, person that was being interviewed, she worked as a clerk at a grocery store, and she said that when she would have a situation where she would have a lot of really hostile, belligerent uh, sorts of customers, she could kind of justify to herself, I'm working really, really hard, I have to put up with this, it's okay if I take a little bit out of the cash register to make up for my, my trouble there. Now he was, this researcher was kind of surprised by that kind of dynamic going on. I'm actually not surprised by that at all because I think that we see that kind of moral licensing taking place all around us and often in our own lives all the time. Bible tells us that that's going to happen. There is a way that seems right to a person, Proverbs says, but the way that it leads to is death. So there are really very few people who sit around like supervillains in a lair uh, plotting to be evil. Uh, most people have a way to reframe whatever it is that we want to do and to find a way to do that while still thinking of myself as a good person, still thinking of myself as a protagonist. That's why these decisions are so perilous. And also because what we're dealing with in ethical and moral decisions in our lives is not just about the decisions themselves. The scripture speaks to over and over and over again, the reality of an unseen spiritual order, something that every culture has recognized in some way or the other uh, using language of uh, spirits or gods or watchers or beings, those beings in the universe that really do seek harm uh, to, to people, to the image bearers of God. Scripture speaks of these realities as principalities and powers or as rulers and authorities and says that there are, uh, th that this dynamic is at work all around us all the time in ways that are invisible to us. So, 
Several years ago, um, I was reading about this divorce case that became really uh, inflammatory because you had three ex-wives of this, this same man uh, that were all involved in a custody dispute with him. And the issue came down to a tattoo that he had on his arm because uh, the three ex-wives said, we don't want to uh, send our, our child over to his house on the weekends because he has an upside down cross uh, on the side of his, his arm that he, he put on his arm because he's a Satanist. And it's terrifying to send a child over uh, to a Satanist with the emblem of the upside down cross on his arm. The man got up and talked in his own defense and said, this isn't as scary as you think because the upside down cross does indicate the church of Satan. I am, he says, a part of the, the church of Satan. He said, but I don't actually believe that there's a devil. So this isn't scary devil worship in the way that you think of it. He said, instead, the upside down cross uh, represents the fact that I believe in the ego being freed from any demand to serve. He says, so the, the cross is an emblem of a servile humanity that is bending its will to someone else. And the Church of Satan teaches me to be free from all of that, to free the ego, and to serve oneself, and to exalt oneself, and to seek power and glory. Now, I disagree with him about the existence of a personal devil, but apart from that, he does have a pretty good read on what Satanism is. The, the freeing of the self and the freeing of the ego in a way that is the opposite of the way of the cross. That's why when you have the New Testament saying that the sorts of encounters that you're going to find in your life, where you're going to have decisions that you have to make about going this direction or going that direction, and often you feel pulled to go in a direction that is contrary to the Word of God, Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, and the scripture defines what that looks like. You have Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 3 and 4 encountering the devil in the wilderness during a, an extended period of, of testing in which Jesus is being questioned continually on his identity and on his inheritance. If you are the son of God, turn these stones uh, into bread. If you are the Son of God, demonstrate it uh, by proving the Scripture right that you will be delivered from death. If you are the Son of God, bow down to me and I will give to you all of the kingdoms of the world. What is the devil seeking to do? What the devil is seeking to do is to bypass the way of the cross in order to seek to ask Jesus to grasp for all of these good and healthy uh, appetites just outside of the provision of God. It's good for Jesus to eat bread. He promises he will eat bread with us in, in the kingdom of the Father. It's, it's good for Jesus to be vindicated in front of the world as the only begotten of the Father. That's what happens at the resurrection. It's good for Jesus to be ruler over all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory but only by pouring himself out, Philippians chapter 2, as a servant and receiving those things from God. That is the way that spiritual warfare actually works, is the questioning of your identity, questioning of who are you, really, 
Do, do you really have a God who has said of you, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased? Do you really have an inheritance? Are, are you really moving towards something that God is preparing you in your life right now? in all of your conversations, in all of your friendships, in all of your hardships, in all of your obstacles, preparing you to rule and reign with Christ? Or do you need to somehow grasp and grab for whatever it is that you desire and seek, whether that's ambition or whether that's pleasure or whether that's uh, the appetites or anything else now? That is fundamentally more than just the question of whether or not you're going to make decisions that are good or bad, although that's true. Uh, the ethics uh, defined Christianly is more than just what would be talked about uh, here in a House Ethics Committee, uh, for instance. It's more than just violation of, of rules. The question is, are you following in any of these specific uh, instances the way of the cross, or are you following then the way of the self? So all of these things come down to questions of identity and of inheritance. And they're questions that maybe especially uh, people can understand in this context. I uh, was talking to someone who had moved from Portland, Oregon, to uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, and then to Washington, D.C., and said that, that he, he and his, his wife were just in this kind of culture shock uh, between these three cities and the way they could define each of these cities would be on the basis of the first question that somebody asks you when you come into town. So in Portland, it's what's your hobby? What do you like to, what do, you like to do? In Fayetteville, it's have you found a church home? Uh, <laughs> and in Washington, D.C., it's who do you work for? And so when someone is asking you the question, who do you work for? Uh, they're really asking you more than just tell me what you're doing right now. They're asking you the question, essentially, who are you? So if you're somebody who's working for a, a really progressive Democrat, that tells me something about uh, who you are ideologically. If you're somebody who work for, works for a really conservative Republican, that generally tells me uh, sort of the direction that you're going. When you tell me what it is that you're doing, that can tell me a little bit about sort of your life plan, about how you see yourself, about your ambition. Uh, that question really is at the heart of all of the uh, decisions that you're going to be making. Who do you work for? And, and behind that, the more important question, who are you and where is it that you're going? That's what's going on around you. And that's one of the reasons why when you come to a biblical understanding of the Christian life and of ethics, there are some things that would make immediate sense. So you think of some of the Proverbs um, that, that would make immediate sense. Don't get involved in someone else's dispute because that's the equivalent of taking a dog by the ears. Uh, you, you don't have to have the Holy Spirit to recognize, I've seen that happen, I don't want that to happen to me. But there are many other things that when you come into the New Testament uh, and the Old as well, you realize these are things that seem to make no sense at all. If you really understand what Jesus is saying about blessed are you who mourn. When you're being persecuted and reviled, 
rejoice and leap for joy. Those are things, if we didn't know that Jesus is saying them, and we didn't know somehow uh, culturally that these are things that we ought to revere, we would say these sound insane uh, to us. Well, that's actually what Jesus is driving at uh, throughout the New Testament, is to bring about the kind of crisis where people realize the strangeness of what it is that he's actually calling us to. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no life in you. I mean, think about how horribly shocking, cult leader sounding, offensive that would be to the people uh, that are there at the seaside, including Jesus's own disciples, who say, we're kind of freaked out by this. Uh, We're we're kind of wanting to, to leave right now, but we don't know where else to go. What Jesus is consistently doing is seeking through the Spirit to bring about the kind of crisis where we genuinely know and understand how different the pattern of the way of the cross is from our natural born kind of social Darwinism that we have, where we're constantly wanting to judge ourselves and we're constantly wanting to judge other people on the basis of power. Uh, and, And that can be power in a huge sense in terms of political or or economic power, or that can be power in a very small sense of who who, uh, is controlling the conversation in the cubicles at the three-person, three-employee workplace. It's all the same sort of quest for power. An understanding of Christian ethics, though, comes in and says, when we're confronted with all of these various decisions, there are a number of levels that we have, to, we have to keep in mind. And the first of those is what I'm going to call uh, the Christic level. And what I mean by that is that we have to understand that we are living in a universe that not only is created with purpose, but you're, we're living in a universe in which everything is patterned after Jesus Christ. All things are created, Paul says, for him, through him, and by him. And Ephesians chapter 1 is saying to us that there is a mystery at the heart of the universe, and the mystery is that God is summing up all things in Jesus Christ. And so the the sorts of, of decisions that we're making, if God has designed a universe that's patterned after Jesus Christ, that reveals something about the fundamental core of his character in Jesus Christ, then we're not going to have some area where we're cordoned off from the gospel because all of the decisions that we're making in some way or other are dealing with the revelation of God in Christ, who it is that God is in Christ. And Jesus, if we're being conformed then into the image of Christ, which is what uh, the spirit of holiness does, That actually is a complicated endeavor because simply saying, I want to be like Jesus does not reduce everything down to an index card that you can can look through. Jesus, as revealed in the Gospels, is strikingly complicated uh, in a way that is frustrating and often mystifying to the people who are with him all the time. You have someone, when everyone else is panicking, seems to be the most decaffeinated person on the planet. The boat's about to capsize, everyone's screaming, we're about to drown. 
And Jesus says, I'm trying to sleep. Why are you waking me up? And then in other instances, uh, when everyone else is asleep, Jesus is sweating blood and crying out uh, into the sky. This is a, this is a complicated figure. The, the life of Christ that the Spirit is living through you is going to end up complicated as well. Uh, the second level is the kingdom level. What Jesus says that he is doing is announcing and embodying uh, the kingdom of God and teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven which means that many of the decisions that that we're going to be making will have to be made in terms of a long-term sense of ourselves. And by long-term, I mean trillions of years. Uh, This is the issue that Jesus is consistently talking about with the disciples. They're wanting to argue about who's the greatest, who's the best, who's going to have this role and who's going to have that role. And Jesus is coming in saying, don't you know that the first will be last and the last will be first? What Jesus is saying to them is, you don't have a long enough perspective of your lives. So um, several years ago, I read this uh, business leader who was writing uh, with words of advice um, to, uh, to business leaders. And one of them was, always be nice to the interns. And it wasn't because this was somebody with a a special sense of compassion uh, for the interns. He says, always be nice to the interns because you never know whether one of those interns will skyrocket past you on the org chart. uh, And and one day you will be accountable to one of those former interns. And so you want to be kind to them on the way up so that they will be kind to you uh, on the way down. And that's the kind of Machiavellian uh, sort of way uh, to think about it. But in, in a very real sense, that is exactly what Jesus is saying. The meek shall inherit the earth. And so the, the idea of seeing my life in terms of the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years is remarkably short-sighted if in fact I have a resurrection life that is going to extend out into eternity. And if in fact, everything that is happening in my life right now is preparing me uh, to rule and to reign with Christ. So this is not the end all and the be all. This is important, but it's important as a kind of kindergarten uh, preparing me for the main event. Having to understand kind of where you fit uh, in in the life cycle here. Then there's what I call ecclesial level which is to say the shape of the church. If Jesus is right, and I think he is, that the church is being shaped and formed as a sign to the rulers and authorities of the triumph of of the kingdom of God, and if the spirit works to sanctify us through the life of the church, then that means that many of the most important questions that we have to face right now have to do with our lives together in the church, even when those things do not seem in our cultural ecosystem to be of most importance and relevance. Uh, You can see that go to uh, virtually any congregation in the country and go in and see what is it that raises people's blood pressure? What is it that, that causes people to become passionate? Typically, that has to do with politics. 
uh, and it has to do with politics at the most, at the barest sort of uh, intuitive kind of lizard brain uh, sort of way uh, of arguing with one another. Well, why is that the case? It's the case because those things seem more real uh, than other questions. Those things are important, but if the gospel is true, then we're being shaped and formed within the church for the rule and reign of God. So many of the most important questions that are facing us are things we're not even thinking about, which is why the the New Testament spends a lot of time dealing with, for instance, in James chapter 2, when you have Roman Empire hostile to Christianity. You have false teachers all over the place. You have a church that could be collapsing at any minute. And James writes about seating arrangements and fashion. Why? Don't bring the rich person and say, you sit here, and say to the poor person, you sit back there. Why? Don't you know that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. It doesn't seem important whether or not you sit somewhere, someone in a particular place, and it even uh, doesn't seem to make rational sense. If you're, if you're planting a church in Washington, D.C., and Jeff Bezos visits, you're not going to say, you know, we have, we're kind of, we've kind of run out of room. You can sit in our overflow uh, room that's, that's over there. You're not going to do that because you're going to think, If Jeff Bezos gets saved, then the sort of influence and witness that he is going to have for the kingdom is incalculable. And if the founder and owner of Amazon not only gets saved, but starts tithing, (laughs) just think of the advance of missionary movement uh, around the world. And the scripture says to think that way is short-sighted because the woman who can barely speak English, who is cleaning toilets and is faithful to Christ, actually is higher on the cosmic org chart than the very influential and, and visibly powerful person. The church is shaping this. That then leads down into questions of personal ethics. What are the habits Uh, that you are putting into place in your own life uh, in order to seek and to follow Christ. And in doing that, we recognize the ways that we have to have one another because we are constantly running a kind of communications shop for ourselves and constantly doing damage control for ourselves and talking ourselves into ways that we can justify ourselves so that as, as time goes on, as we start becoming habitually involved in things, then initially you get involved in something that you shouldn't. There's sometimes initially this sense of uh, alarm that takes place. That alarm starts to subside over time. And, and what happens is without even thinking about it, what we start saying to ourselves is exactly what the prophets are talking about in the Old Testament. When, when they say the reaction is God does not see, God does not know. I'm, I'm escaping with this, therefore I'm going to continue doing this to, to, the, to, the, to the degree that it starts to become even normal for me. And then finally, social. Well, 
how is it that we, that we live together in societies and in, in networks of people? Now, sometimes what you're going to have is some Christians who will emphasize social ethics, not emphasize personal ethics. And sometimes you're going to have Christians who will come in and emphasize personal ethics, and they won't talk about uh, issues of social ethics. They'll say, we don't talk about that. You just talk about how it is that you're supposed to live uh, before Christ, but don't talk about these issues of social ethics. Uh, the, the Bible just doesn't do that. The Bible fits together the personal and the social right together. Those who oppress the poor and are involved in sexual immorality, denounced by uh, Isaiah in a, single, in a single line. James, in the book of James, is talking about the control of the tongue and about the way that people are treating the workers uh, on their land. Those two things go together. Also because if we're, if we're those who are called consistently to repentance and faith, to turning away from uh, ourselves and turning toward the way of the cross and toward the way of Christ, that means not only the things that we do by ourselves, but also the things that we do together. Joseph's brothers, can't say, well, you can't interrogate what we're doing in throwing our brother into the pit and selling him into slavery because this is a political act. We're, we're, we're working together. No, they're working together in something that is unrighteous, in something that is, uh, that is sin. So when we're talking about the way of the cross, that means that we have decisions that we have to make in all of these areas, and those issues are not always simple. And so sometimes you will have situations, whether in ecclesial, personal, social ethics, where you say, these are issues that are completely black and white. Should you torture infants? No. Uh, we, we know that we're able to say that. Thus saith the Lord on that. Uh, there are going to be other issues where there are going to be certain principles that are going to be biblically revealed but we, we don't necessarily all come down on the same place as to how those things are to be applied. And so you think about um, questions of uh, whether or not for parents, thinking through questions of, well, should I give my child an iPhone? Uh, or what sort of school and education should I give to my child? There are biblical principles for making those sorts of decisions, but there's not a list of rules in scripture. And if we come in and make a list of rules, age 15 is the age for the iPhone, uh, then you're speaking with an authority that Scripture has not given to you uh, in a way that actually negates uh, the rest of, of the Word of God. So there are going to be a lot of things that are fitting in this middle category where we need one another, and sometimes even when we come down on opposite places of those things, we have to be the people who are making those decisions in the right way, which means that we're constantly examining as we're going for, am I putting to death the self? Am I walking in the way of Christ? Am I thinking this through with prayer and with supplication and with, and with self-denial? Am I paying attention to the accumulated uh, wisdom of the church? Uh, sometimes, I think that it is a better situation for someone who makes a completely different decision than I would make on one of these murkier uh, issues. 
but has gotten to that decision the right way. Better than the person who makes a decision that I would say that's exactly what I would do, but who gets there thoughtlessly. Because the one who has struggled through in the first instance is actually being shaped and prepared for future habits and future decisions uh, that are going to come down the road. And as we're doing that, recognizing and knowing that there are, again, spiritual realities uh, all around you, meaning that there are principalities and powers that are specifically and personally watching you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and specifically and personally want to take you down, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and specifically and personally are watching for those points of vulnerability that you have and are also watching for what, uh, what it is that you desire and you want and will be willing to give you those things at the expense of the cross. As long as you will walk toward them away from the way of the cross, then you are walking in a way that ultimately leads to destruction. So the issue in terms of spiritual warfare is not just what decision you're making in all of these things. It's the question of whether or not you'd rather be magnified than crucified. Whether you see your identity hidden in Christ so that you're freed from the kind of fear that says, I, I have to protect myself by any means necessary, but says, the worst thing could possibly happen to me has already happened. And that's not losing my job. That's not having somebody walk out on me in a relationship. That's not getting cancer. It's being crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem under the curse of the law. That's already happened to me. That's over. And the best thing that could possibly happen to me is not a stellar career or fame or uh, riches. The best thing that can happen to me is being raised from the dead to newness of life, seated at the right hand of the Father, and being given an inheritance of everything in the created universe. That has already happened to me too. And my life then is hidden uh, in Jesus Christ. As long as you're not seeing that, then the devil doesn't mind if your values are good. The devil doesn't mind if your moral theories are good. The devil doesn't mind if your principles are right side up as long as your crosses are upside down. So when we're thinking about the issue of ethics, what we're really talking about is the cross. This has been a special episode of Capital Conversations, the ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I hope you'll join us next week for part two of Christian Ethics with Russell Moore. Next week, Dr. Moore will speak to the role of conscience for the Christian battling temptation. Thanks to our production team, Gary Lancaster, Marie Delph, and Conrad Close, and also to Matt Hawkins for playing the role of audio engineer recording Dr. Moore's lectures at the ERLC Academy on the Hill this past summer. Resources from this episode are available at ERLC.com, along with additional podcasts, videos, and articles to equip you and your church.